Welcome to We The Podcast. We have masses, that's all we have. If we can't be masses, we aren't anything. They don't have the bargaining power to negotiate for a fair share of the profits. When people can come together and ask for better wages and working conditions on the job, we all do better. Unfortunately, some politicians and corporations don't see it that way. Earlier this year, Wisconsin became the 25th so-called right-to-work state in the United States. Right-to-work. Sounds good, right? Right-to-work is a clever name for a policy that actually hurts workers. Right-to-work laws don't give workers a protected right to a job. In fact, they make it nearly impossible for working Americans to organize together and demand higher wages and safer working conditions. In order to know how right-to-work laws hurt workers, you must understand how fair share agreements work. I asked Gordon Laffer, a political economist and associate professor at the University of Oregon, to explain what happens when unions negotiate contracts in states without right-to-work. If the workers and employer agree, you can sign a contract that says that everybody who benefits from the terms of a union contract has to pay their fair share just of the cost of negotiating it and enforcing it. Anyone who's ever tried to organize knows it takes a lot of resources. Fair share agreements allow workers who benefit from the work of the union, but who do not want to be full members of the union, to make a discounted contribution so the union can continue to bargain for them. But right-to-work laws allow freeloaders. That means that if you don't want to be part of the union, you can benefit, but you don't have to pay anything. In fact, you get something for nothing. What right-to-work laws do is they make it illegal to have an agreement like that. So they say, anybody who doesn't want to pay, you know, you don't have to pay. So it's as if you would say to me, you know, the part of your taxes that go to pay for the fire department are now optional, but they'll still come and put out the flames if your house catches on fire. I don't need to be anti-fire department. All I need is that times are tight and you just told me one of my bills are optional. So a lot of people are going to stop paying. If too many people opt out, then the union has no, has no ability to negotiate uh, decent wages and conditions for the employees. Right-to-work laws stack the deck against fairness so that those who want better working conditions and paychecks have to pay their fair share and the fair share of every worker who benefits from the union's organizing. When people stop paying, the union can't organize workers. Angela Marlowe knows firsthand what happens when unions are busted this way. She currently works for the Child Support Division of the Ramsey County Attorney's Office in Minnesota, and she's president of Ask Me Council Local 8. She came to Minnesota after Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker signed Act 10 in 2011, which limited collective bargaining rights for public sector employees. We lost our collective bargaining rights, um, I think it was June 2nd that year of 2011. Quite frankly, when I started in Wisconsin, I didn't understand. I mean, I was pro-union, I signed a card. Um, nobody talked to us about what was going on with Walker, and this was three months before it happened. Um, and so when he was elected and he enacted Act 10, no, it, we were really blindsided. We didn't know what that meant. We didn't know what that was going to mean for our futures. Angela stays in contact with her friends in Milwaukee, and they've seen the effects of right to work in one important place, their paychecks. The difference now is I think they're making about $11,000 less than they were um, when I was there in 2011. Um, one of my friends told me that is still an agent there. Um, 
he they did get two one percent raises um, but they were eaten up by the large amount of contribution to the pension that increased and the health insurance costs. The impact is widespread in all states with right to work. Here's Professor Laffer. Serious economic evidence shows us that on average wages are about 3% lower, all, of, all other things being equal, including cost of living, wages are about 3% lower, and the chance of getting a pension or health insurance through your job is 2 to 5% lower. When public sector unions are attacked first, it sends a dangerous message to public servants. People go into public service not for money to begin with. We go, you know, we decide to be public servants because we want to help people. Um, and then when all of these things happen, it, it makes you feel like you don't have any support. Nobody wants, you know, our work is no longer valued. But attacking public sector unions has a purpose. When unions negotiate a new contract, a spillover effect happens. The higher wages and better benefit packages set a new standard for non-union workers in that sector, which companies are pressured to match if they want to keep the most talented people. When right-to-work laws are passed, the spillover effect runs in the other direction. If unions get weakened and their wages and benefits are cut down, there's a negative spillover effect because now non-union employers don't have, to, don't have to compete with that standard. In states with right-to-work laws, workers have lower than average wages and lower wages than non-right-to-work states. People in right-to-work states also have lower rates of health care insurance, higher rates of poverty and infant mortality, and higher rates of workplace fatality. So if these laws are literally hurting workers, who's pushing them? Most of the laws, uh, most of the states that have right-to-work laws adopted them in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and it was part of uh, a, a bad history, a, at times a racist history, a McCarthyist history, uh, and then it was really a dead issue for a long time until after Citizens United when we saw the power of corporate money come back and dominating state legislatures. In every state, people tend to think, oh, this comes from a local legislator and it's because of what's happening in the economy in my state, and that's never true. You know, the law that just passed in Wisconsin was almost word for word model legislation written by the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a combination of some of the biggest corporations in the country that write legislation that gets introduced in cookie-cutter fashion in state after state. Angela believes things work out best when unions collaborate with managers and businesses. But right-to-work advocates pit workers against managers. All around wages, benefits, your ability to have a voice, your ability to do the work as best practices because you considered management's perspective and the worker's perspective only makes it a better place and a more productive place. I think that theory that unions are always about a fight and that it's always about a battle. Yes, there is a battle that we have to fight because of all of these politics, but at the core of it, it's just there to support everybody because if we all are better, we all are better. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. once said, we must guard against false slogans such as right to work. It provides no rights and no works. Its purpose is to destroy labor unions and the freedom of collective bargaining. We must demand that this fraud be stopped. But unlike the segregation that Martin Luther King fought, the right to work has not been relegated to the dustbin of history. In fact, right now, right to work laws are pressing down wages all over the country. As this movement for right to work moves forward, history is on the side of these workers who are demanding worker justice in the face of these so-called right to work laws.
This is Congressman Keith Ellison. We'll see you next time on We the Podcast. Where do we go?